I'm going to be reading in a moment from uh, 1 Thessalonians. So you want to get your Bible and turn in the New Testament to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 5. And you'll be ready for that as we get to that in just a second. Um, some of you that have been around a little while, you know that I'm kind of a comic book guy. And so I like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, all those guys. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, Crash Course, Peter Parker is just your basic average nerdy kind of student who one day is bit by a spider that just happened to be radioactive, that just happened to have been through some testing kinds of things. And so when the spider bit him, he was like infused with this spider-type capability only multiplied over several times. And so all of a sudden, Parker finds out that he can scale and climb a wall, that he has, like spiders do, strength many times beyond his size and physical stature. And he has this capacity to, you know, shoot webs. And he's able to do all kinds of cool things with that, including, you know, swing from building to building. And uh, he trains himself, he develops these extraordinary capabilities, and he becomes like this guy that fights evil and bad guys and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I like Spider-Man. You got any other Spider-Man fans? I, man, I was getting lonely for just a second there. All right. So, um, here's the deal. He's got a pretty cool costume, but that would make no difference whatsoever if he was going to try to be Spider-Man by virtue of appearance alone. And so, uh, how he would clothe himself, how he would act and behave, were almost beside the point, because what was absolutely necessary was that a different kind of life had been infused in him. Are you following me? And so it is with every person that has become alive in Jesus Christ. Uh, he didn't put a spider life in you. He's, he put a spirit life in you. And like Spider-Man, who has these extraordinary abilities to sense things and see things and smell things and all that kind of... So it is with Christians. As followers of God who have His Spirit dwelling in them and is transforming them, we have capacity to see things that God sees that other people don't see, to hear things that God hears that other people don't hear, to engage in some life circumstances and situations that other people are not invited into to make a difference in this world and to make a difference in time and eternity. So, like Spider-Man, it really makes virtually no difference how you dress, how you appear, how you, you know, uh, carry yourself about, what really matters is do you have that different life in you that he has put in you. Now, Parker had all these abilities, and he didn't know exactly what to do with them in the beginning. He had to enter into a process of developing capacity to use these new abilities. 
If you saw the first Spider-Man movie, you know, you saw some of those hilarious moments where the first time he tries to swing from one building to another, he about kills himself. And so he had to train and develop the capacity to use these abilities. Are you with me? And that's what we're talking about with the church. The church is one of those arenas in which we learn to develop and to deploy the things that God has put in us, these spirit life, Christ life type things. They're in you. They're in me already. Do you know how to access that? Do you know how to uh, uh, exercise that? Do you know how to deploy that in the name of Christ and for the cause of Christ? Today we're talking about the practice of discipline in the church. Now, some of you saw in the series that uh, we've been doing for these weeks what today's topic was, and many of you have been saying for weeks, I don't know if I'm going to come on that day. I don't know that I want to hear more about the discipline you know, in the church. Because basically, there is one dominating concept about what discipline in the church means, and that concept is the aspect of correction. When we think of discipline in the church, it's like, okay, somebody's going to tell me I'm doing something wrong, or I'm going to get crosswise with somebody, and they're going to hurl some legalistic you know, bomb my way. And, of course, a couple of weeks ago, I explored with you a scenario that was going on in 1 Corinthians 5, where a guy was actually having an affair with, as the text says, his father's wife. So it was either his mother or his stepmother. In either case, it was an incestuous bad scene. And Paul is saying, you've got to discipline that guy. And in that sense, he meant correction. And I made the case on that day, that's a very loving thing to do. It's unloving to let people just hurl their lives off into sinful, self-destructive, other life-destructive kinds of things and do nothing about that. That's unloving. And so it was a very loving thing for this kind of corrective uh, engagement of this guy's life. But way more time and attention in the Scriptures are given to the matter of discipline in a formation. Not a correction, but a formation kind of way. And that's where we're going to spend our time today. I've already talked to you about the correction aspect of that a couple of weeks ago. Today we're going to talk more about the formation. What's God doing with His church to help train our lives and release our lives in His power to do what he's up to in this world. We're his body. We're his hands. We're his feet. We're his mouth. We're his eyes and ears. And so it just makes sense that if he's going to deploy us in this world as his body, that he would give us his capabilities to do his mission that he's entrusted to us. Are you with me? Thank you. Where's Sean? I need a little help up here. It's, it's a tough, tough crowd today. Yeah. Okay. So we're... We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, look at the, the text with me, and let's consider it for just two moments. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, picking up in verse 14. Paul said, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
Do not put out the Spirit's fire. In other words, He's infused you with this Spirit life. Don't quench that. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. In other words, when God gives you a word, when God speaks into your life, don't just easily dismiss that. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, at the very end of this text, points out, he's coming again. He's coming again. Don't be ill-prepared for his return. Practice the things that he's just outlined here in in this text. He's put within you a power and a capability to be this person, to live this life. Now, in the context of relationship and covenant and commitment with one another, develop that stuff in you and become that person. Live that life. So, here's the problem. Most of uh, those in the American church, anyway, have tended to minimize what God is up to with us so that it just becomes having uh, a matter of having the right answers. Are you a Christian? Uh, are you involved in His church? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that He died on the cross for my sins and I'm going to go to heaven someday when I die. Bang! That's it. Friends, that is not it. That is such a minimalistic shrinking of what the gospel and good news is all about. It's almost insulting to God to say it's, it's about having the, the right fill-in for the blank. And neither is it about having right behaviors. I just want to stay out of trouble. I just don't want to you know, mess up my life. It's not so minimalized that it's about right answers or right behaviors. It is about a revolutionized, transformed, altogether different, spirit-infused life. Friends, please don't sell yourself short on anything less than that. And so, here's how that plays out for us. In the church, we began having commitments, not only to Christ, but to one another. And uh, we spell that out in specific terms. We call that a covenant. I promise to be with you in certain ways. You promise to be with me in certain ways. So that as we are with one another in these ways, God uses that to further release the spirit He's put within us and to develop and to shape a life that wouldn't happen any other way. Are you with me? So, for example, as you know me, and, and you know, I just introduced some friends to you a moment ago, they've known me for a really long time. I can promise you, as you know me, I will hurt you at some point. I will disappoint you. I will befuddle you. you go, what was that? Because I'm a busted, screwed up human being. And my wife didn't say amen, which I appreciate. Thank you very much. Oh, you did say. I just didn't hear it. Okay. So here's the point. 
if we're going to stay in relationship with each other, I've got to figure out and learn how to make amends. How to clean up my relational mess with you. When I learn how to make amends with you and you don't run away from having a relationship with me, but you continue to be up close and personal with me so that I can make amends with you, that changes my life. The more I make amends, the more deterrent that is to me to mess up in the future because I don't want to keep making amends. It ain't fun. Simultaneously, you have, not should, have to learn how to forgive me. You have to forgive me if you're going to be a follower of Christ. It's not an option not to forgive me. And when you engage God and say, okay, God, I really don't want to forgive Scott this time, but help me. And He brings that kind of grace to your life. It changes your life. You become a forgiving person. See, this is not about people who just think certain ways and act certain ways. It's about people becoming certain people. I want to become a forgiving, grace-filled kind of individual. Now, somewhere along the way, you're going to irritate the heck out of me. You just are. Uh, Some of us have talked about it. And guess what? God is often using that in my life like heavenly sandpaper. Isn't that delightful? To make me patient. You know, please, this little cop out, oh God, don't ever pray for patience because God... Absolutely pray for patience. He wants us to be patient people. I'm willing to go. We will be willing to go through whatever He wants us to go through to become patient people. Otherwise, we don't have His life. And so I want to be a person that knows how to make amends. I want to be a person that is a forgiving person. I want to be a person that is a patient person. I want to know how to respond to those that are needy with kindness. I don't mean act kind, pretend to be kind, how are you? I'm so sorry. Oh, I wish they didn't have that problem. I'm not talking about this duplicitous kind of schizoid person. I'm talking about legitimately caring and kind. The only way you become that is to be up close and personal with people that need kindness. And then we're going to have struggles all the time with folks around us that are struggling at some point of fear and intimidation with life and timidity. And the text that we just said is that learn how to encourage one another. Learn how to be with people in a way that brings the courage of Christ to their heart. I'm not talking about a false, superficial rah-rah, I know you can do anything. But where you have a high confidence in God and what God will do in that person, and you can speak with some sense of Christ's authority, He will come through for you. I know it. And in that moment when they don't have the courage, the courage of Christ comes through you to them. Now, this is all about what He's up to in His church. It's all about us becoming and being people of God. Not just pretending and acting to be people of God. Now, that last verse that we read, verse 23, said... It's in this engagement of His church and His uh, developing these things in us that He sanctifies us. That simply means 
make like Jesus. He transforms us. And we are convinced around here that nobody ever lived life as well as Jesus. Right? And so we look to Him not just with this pining of, wouldn't it be cool if somehow I could have something similar to Jesus' life? No. He intends for us to have His life. And have the experience in this world that He experienced. So, for example, compassion. You look in those pages of the New Testament and you see Jesus come upon these lepers, right? These people that have this awful, dreaded disease of leprosy. And the text tells us He had compassion for them. That doesn't mean, you know, I just kind of feel bad that they've got a disease. That means He's able to feel what they feel. He knows something of what their heartache in life is. And it was way beyond the disease. Of course, they were outcasts of society. They were, you know, shunned by other people. He got that. He, he would come upon a widow who had just lost her son and now had no other kind of meaningful love, life relationship in, in, in her existence. And he had compassion toward her. People that were hungry. People that were being treated unfairly and unjustly. Compassion. Compassion. And conversely, those who would put such injustices and unfairness on other people, he would have appropriate anger. So that when he sees a guy who's got this shriveled hand and he feels the father stirring him to heal the guy with the shriveled hand, but he looks around and he sees the legalistic Pharisees just kind of waiting. I wonder if he's going to do that healing on the Sabbath. We're going to bust him if he does that. He gets angry with them for their small legalistic mindedness that didn't have even enough compassion for a guy with a need for healing. And he's got all these busybody guys that are trying to keep the little children away from him. He gets indignant about that. Don't you prevent those kids from coming to me. Now, one of the great minds of ancient days, a guy like Aristotle comes along and he says, you know what? It's easy to be angry. But to be angry at the right person or circumstance at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right degree of anger, that is hard. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Always appropriate. Always timely. Always capable. That's the life we're talking about. Appropriate. Timely, capable, with compassion, with anger, with grief. You know, when um, Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus and already had a sense of what the Father was going to lead him to do, call Lazarus from the dead and raise him back to life, he already kind of knows what God's up to in this scenario 
of bringing great glory to God and, and drawing hearts to God and increasing faith. He already knows what God's up to, but he sees the mourning and the sadness and the loss all around him. And uh, 1134 tells us in the Gospel of John, he wept. He sobbed. He cried over that. And then the sister of Lazarus comes up to him, and out of her anguish, it says he groaned. There was this, like, audible utterance out of him of groaning. And there was a couple of other scenarios where he groaned. He had the capacity to grieve with people appropriately in a timely fashion in ways that brought hope and grace. And then, conversely, he was also able to be a person of great joy. Even in the midst of grievous situations. So when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, always have joy, always give thanks, Jesus did that. He's at the, the table for the Last Supper. He knows what's coming in a few hours about the betrayal and about the beating and the mockery of a trial and then the crucifixion on the next day. He knows what's coming. And he's sitting at the table with his disciples and he says, I have desired with a great desire this moment with you. That double use of the word desire as a verb and as a noun brings about the intensity of the joy that he had to be able to have that Passover moment that we now celebrate with the Lord's Supper with these his closest disciples. Joy. And then love. When Jesus is coming into the city on Palm Sunday... And there's the little parade, you know. And everybody's waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. And this must be the, the son of David. And, you know, they've got the little, the little parade thing happening. The text tells us that he was weeping because of his love for them. And that they were out of connection, out of fellowship with God. And he could foresee the devastation and the destruction that was going to come to Jerusalem because of their waywardness. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he loved them. Another text tells us when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's like, you know, how do I have eternal life? And he's popping all these legalistic questions at Jesus. The text says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Not some kind of cheap, superficial sentimentality, but a deep heart engagement about other people. That's our life. That's the life he has infused us with and that we, in the life of the church, learn how to work out of us, live out of us. Jesus was responsible. responsible. He had the ability to respond to what God was doing and what was going on in the lives of people. Are you responsible? I was recently reading uh, some writings of a guy by the name of Ted Cluck. 
and uh, he he was conveying a story that happened uh, a few years ago when he was writing his first book about Mike Tyson and he was writing about the whole boxing world and so he said you know to kind of get into that I went into uh, training I went to the gym and began to train like a boxer because I wanted to know experientially something about their lives and what was going on in their world and so he said after I had done a little bit of training and I got into the ring with a sparring partner Ted said I have never in my life been so focused had so much concentration in just shuffling around a ring and trying to throw a punch and not get killed by the guy across the ring from me he said I've never been so focused and so concentrated about anything in my entire life which the point is the church should be as relevant as the gym is to the boxer I shared all this information a moment ago about how you know so many people find the church irrelevant and they find it boring and they find it old-fashioned and out of touch and so on friends it might be that if you're coming for a show because this ain't Hollywood and there's no way we'll compete with Disneyland this is the gym this is where we train so that we have a life that can contend with evil out there and evil in us so that we can fight for the cause of Christ and the souls of men and women and if you're in the ring and the opponent is throwing knockout punches your way you ain't bored you're focused your concentration is at a peak and so the question before us is what's the church to you don't let an auditorium and lights and staging deceive you from the fact that this is a gym and in our relational context God is training our lives so how do you respond to that by virtue of the fact that you came you've been a part of what we've been up to today God's been trying to interact with you in a certain kind of way how do you respond to that when Paul began his words in first Thessalonians 5 he said I urge you brothers and sisters that's a little more intense and a little stronger than here's a good idea think about this I urge you I plead with you don't be idle don't just sit back having the right answers and mostly the right behaviors receive the life develop and live the life and so perhaps you're 
response right now would be one of confession. God, I confess, you're right. And everything around me in this world and culture that contradicts that is wrong. I confess, you're the way, you're the truth, you're the life. And if you're way off that page, then confess, and I haven't been on that page. Please forgive me and repent. Now, repentance is not just stopping certain actions and behaviors. Repentance is also and mostly about starting. And so if I have been self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish, then I need to engage the discipline of worship. Having a God-centeredness, a God-focus. I need to engage in the, the discipline of service. Having an other focus, an other engagement, so that it's not all about me. Do you see the way the disciplines connect with our issues? If I have a problem with a loose mouth and gossip and cheap talk, then I need to engage in a, in a discipline of solitude and separateness and getting quiet before God so that God can speak to me about my mouth. If I have an issue with impatience, then I need to engage in disciplines of slowing my life so that I can begin to trust Him with whatever circumstances not happening at the speed of light that I wanted them to happen at. But the point is this. If I'm going to confess and agree with Him, then confession must be accompanied by repentance. And repentance is active engagement in certain practices that counteract my fallen life and build the true life in me. Which leads me in the third place to say, then I've got to become proficient at submission. Submission should not be slow to me. should not be this resistant, I guess I better submit. But it's like this first knee-jerk reaction that I have. I've come to, to know God and trust God in such a way that if God says, do this, boom, I want to react immediately in submission to that. I mean, when your children are small and they're running up to a busy street and cars are zooming each way, and you say, stop, boom, you want, you want them to have built into them that ready reaction to be able to submit to your word and stop. And so it is with God. If He says, stop, start, do, be, Engage. Boom, boom, boom. Highly responsive. Response-able. And then the last thing I'll say is that it's got to look like persistence. Because you're not and I'm not going to get it right all the time. We will fall. We will trip and stumble. And boom, we need to get up. We need to, to have Him restore, to renew, to rebuild to re-engage us in whatever was going on. To not quit. And some of the statistics that I referenced earlier today, so many of those numbers represent people, particularly young adults, not that never engaged in church, but had at some point been in church. And quit. 
Friends, if if you haven't already, and I can't even imagine anyone in the room that's never been there, but if you haven't already ever thought about or been tempted to quit, I just don't want to keep going, I just don't want to keep being involved, I just don't want to do what they're doing down there, it's going to happen. You will have temptations to quit, to stop, to give up. And what God would say to us today is persist, 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 persist until there is not breath in your lungs. How do you need to respond today? Confession, repentance, submission, persistence. Let's pray. So, Father, you uh, have certainly made the case today, advocating for your church, but especially calling for us to have the life. And I pray for my friends in the room and those that are listening to this later. Give us a holy discontent with anything less than what you're calling for. We pray that all the cheap substitutes that are out there for the Christ life and the experience of the body of Christ, or anything that's a cheap substitute for that, we pray, give us a a distaste for that. We pray you give us a, a hunger and a thirst for you and your cause, your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.